Hey, I'm Sailor. It's another episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey, and tonight it's a countdown to extinction. Just like the Bye Bye Yes, it is, but we are still here, able to do our show. So we're not extinct yet. But for the listeners that might be new to the show, we sometimes compare two albums from one artist against each other. We discuss, usually argue, and sometimes very professionally debate the merits. And in the end, only one album or artist reigns supreme. Who you call him professional? I know, right? God, it's like an right, insult man. on this show. <laughs> We are not extinct. So, tonight, <laughs> the battle will surround another original American thrash band. And we will be battling two of Megadeth's albums. Yes, indeed. If you listened to Monday's show, you already know what we're talking about. If you didn't, let me fill you in. So, we've decided to make this a two-part episode so we can really drill down into these albums. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about Megadeth's formation as a band, the early years, up to the album Peace Sells, but who's buying? Yes, indeed, Sailor, but first, I wanted to give a shout out to our listeners. Because as you guys heard last week on our promo for the Metal, Rock, and March Madness bracket that we're doing this month, uh, we're about six days in right now, so uh, just wanted to thank you. Uh, We've had a pretty good turnout, a couple surprises in there, at least in my opinion. Uh, But you you guys are fucking doing great, and um, you know we got a long way to go, but we're getting there. And uh, keep turning out, keep getting those votes in, and uh, we'll have continuous updates as the weeks go by. Who knew that I would find this so much fun? Tell you. It's anytime you can get the fans involved, it is so much fun. Well, to be fair, metal and rock is a little more interesting than basketball, at least oh, to me anyway. Thank oh, you. hell yeah. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Not I even am close. I'm not a basketball fan. And hopefully my nephews aren't listening to this episode because they are <laughs> both basketball players. And I love watching them, but um I'm I'm a I'm a baseball girl. I think we already know this. And hockey, hockey and baseball. We can do March Madness for that. Basketball. Yeah, I'm pretty much a fan of anything except for basketball. Mm. I was gonna say, I like curling. I like curling better. <laughs> actually, I like curling too. Curling I, yeah, I tried too doing it when I was in Buffalo. It's really hard. Actually, have you ever tried it? I would love to try it, but I have never. It's super no. super fun. They have the um, the ribbon uh, downtown in Buffalo, and it's like the old canals get frozen over, and they turn part of it into a skating rink. And so there's like this little corner, and these guys will teach you to do curling. And it's it's really really difficult. I used to think like, oh, how hard can that be? But it's really all about. Um, it's a real real team sport, believe it or not, because when we were like 
you know, sweeping. I forget what you call it when you're like sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. Yeah. You know, I think that's what they you call have it, to sweepers. talk to the guy who's pushing the thingy and he's got to be able to follow the path because you're not always sweeping in a perfectly straight line. It's really difficult. But yeah, and then you have to talk know. about you have to talk about speed of sweeping too, so yes. slow it down or speed yeah, it he'll, up. Yeah, yeah, he'll be like, wait, wait, slow, 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 slow. Okay, faster, 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 because we can't couldn't see when I was sweeping behind us, really. You know, so yeah, it was, it was, it's a lot more of a sport than than I thought it was, to be honest. So it's fun. More complex than shuffleboard, even though it's like a very more complicated version Mu- of shuffleboard. Much more I guess. complicated. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, after you're done, you get to go have fries with curds on it and drink a lot of beer <laughs> also known as poutine yes except i don't <laughs> put the the meat crap on it so it's not really poutine because i don't put the gravy on it oh you leave okay gotcha yeah i can't i'm, I'm i don't eat the meats so I didn't want to call it poutine and get called out for being incorrect because we've right, we have we have not been kind to our Canadian friends often on this show. I know. No, if this we is have, the assuming we have any so Canadian far. listeners left after <laughs> the uh, a few episodes. We'll, we'll have to look at our stats Can, and midgets. I mean, I know you're not supposed to say that word anymore, but it got tossed around a few times by accident. So yeah. Anyway, I need a drink all right. after all of that. <laughs> Let's get this crazy train back on the rails here. Um, So if you didn't hear the episode on Monday already, go back and listen to it. Sailor had a fucking kick-ass whiskey segment. Hey, thanks. So so go back and listen to that. Uh, And you better have listened to it because you better be drinking that whiskey with us tonight if you are listening. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there are two other other of us here, and uh, we are drinking right now. So, Ed, what do you have in the glass tonight? In my glass tonight? Well... I'm cheating a little bit. Well, just a little bit. Maybe not really. Because this is, even though it's technically not whiskey, it is whiskey-related. I am drinking um, Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Ale tonight. It is a beer which has been aged in used Kentucky bourbon barrels. And I've been a fan of this for, for quite some time now. And um, I decided I would just, I was just in the mood for it tonight. I said, well, well not, why not? I'll have some, and that's what I'm drinking. Have you guys tried this before? I really like that stuff. We discovered it when we moved to Cincinnati many, many, many years ago. The only thing I will say about it is I wish they would back off on the sweetness, because I can only drink one of them. The flavor is so good, but I feel like it's overly sweet, so I can't have multiple well, that's a good thing because it's kind of expensive. Yeah, you're <laughs> and, probably and, for a beer. and strong. I'm sure it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. But it's, it's, it's very fairly yummy. high uh, yeah. ABV for a for a beer. Yeah, it's very very yummy though. Yes. yes. How'd you guys, Matt? I'm drinking. This is pretty weird. Oh, geez, don't say. I wrong. guess no. It's not rum. No, it, it, it is whiskey, but it's. This, what I'm drinking tonight is just a perfect example of the spectrum of tastes and aromas that you can get from drinking whiskey, more so than any other spirit, really, in my opinion. But I'm drinking uh, green malt barley whiskey from Copper Sea, which is in New York State. Um, 
and it's 100% green malt barley. Now, for you people that don't know what green malt barley is, so basically, uh, copper sea themselves, they have their own malting floor, and they grow all of their own barley, so they do that whole process themselves, and instead of kilning, kilning, I can, can never say that word, kilning, kilning the, mm-hmm. the barley after it germinates, they, they put it right into the mash while it's still germinating, so it's green malt barley. Weird. Okay. Yes. Why do they do that? That's just what they do. For, for a unique different flavor is, profile. Yeah, well, I was different gonna say, flavor is there profile. an intention for flavor there, or is it a historic thing? I'm assuming it's it's just to be it's to be different, if, just ah, to get some, okay. maybe some more organic flavors out of the barley. Gotcha. I would assume, uh, but I mean, it's. I hate to compare it to like new make bourbon, but it has a lot of similar qualities. It's just very. I hate to use the word again, green, but it's very green. Got a very grassy, very, very of, uh... grainy, almost. Um, I get a lot of like, like farmhouse, like the day after a, a, a rain kind oh, of like smell to it. Do you like, mean like, like damp hay? Like damp hay. Thank yeah. you. Like damp hay. Damp hay is um, what. Yeah, I sort of like, like wet, grass. like wet vegetables. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Kind of like yeah. Yeah, like very wet vegetal. grass and damp yeah. hay. Yeah, that's what. I mean, I feel like new make, like real new make. Yeah. That's been like when small distilleries do like white dog, um, especially if it's rye. When I was at Indian Creek Distillery, we have a beautiful white rye. To me, that was the flavor profile there, which I like if it's done well. If it, I th- feel like it's such a fine line because either it's gross or it's done really well and it's but, beautiful. You know, this, it, sees, it sees a year in the barrel. Um, which doesn't lend a lot to the taste. What size is it? Fifty-three gallon barrels. I think so. Yeah. What's the I'd color? I have to double check like? on that. Um, pretty light. It would have to be if it's pretty light. Three gallons. You're not going to get a lot of color out of that. Yeah, I mean it's it's very light. It's not obviously it's not it's not clear like true new make, but um, lighter in color, very light in body, hot, hmm. pretty hot. It's um, ninety-six proof. So not super high, but it does drink hot. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's it's weird, but I freaking dig it. I don't know. Nice. It's just, cool. yeah, it's it's completely different. I don't know what I was expecting when I opened the bottle. Sometimes different is good. Yeah, yeah different is very good. It's just maybe I'm just more impressed with just the spectrum of, like, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know what I was thinking when I opened it. I don't know if I was thinking more along the lines of a scotch or something mm. like that, since it was 100% barley. Recipe. But, I mean, yeah. the green the green malt just strips a lot hmm. away. But in a good way. In a good way. It sounds interesting. I'm definitely, I definitely would like to check that out. Oh, sure. Well, as you guys know, I am drinking my whiskey pairing from Monday, which is the Amador Double Barrel Bourbon. Um, have you guys gone and gotten a bottle yet? I have not been able to find one. I didn't. I yelled at the listeners before, and I didn't get my own. It's not... I I feel ashamed. It's not (laughs) super easy to find, but if you go to the larger liquor stores, you can find it. Um, Still delicious. Still enjoying it. um, Still really happy with this. I think it's a little... Not as of an extreme as yours, Matt, but definitely different than Mm -hmm. a lot of what I drink, because I think... I tend to drink a lot of very old whiskey. Um, last, this whole past week, I was drinking 
going through my entire bottle of the Balvenie um, Caribbean cask. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw your posts on oh, that. So I still haven't tried that. I'd amazing. love to try. Amazing. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like when you have when you personally have a scotch and you really love it, you really love it. Like you hold it really close to your heart. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, my relationship with scotch is so bizarre and um, my my taste for scotch is developing, of course. I'm not very far into my scotch journey, actually. Um, and it's, if I can interject here, it's kind of cool because, I mean, with this podcast, is for everyone who has been kind of listening along from the beginning with this podcast, has been kind of following your scotch journey almost from the very beginning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I yeah. think... This month is probably, it's either this month or next month is my one year anniversary with my Scotch journey officially because I started to work with, um, with, uh, William and Grant, William Grant and Sons. I think it was end of February, early March. My first really big tasting that I hosted was on St. Patrick's Day. Um, and then for my birthday, I was given a bottle of uh, double wood, <laughs> which was an amazing gift to be given. Uh, and I really flipped out. And then I think it was in the early summer that I really went to to experience peated whiskey and started with, again, the Belvenies Peat Week and fell head over heels in love with it. Um I'm going to need a lot more time in my scotch journey to be able to branch out into other peated whiskey because I've tried it and I can't handle it. Um, yeah, get off the mainland, man. Everything needs to be that <laughs> Balvenie peat week for me. So um, I'll, I'll get there. I'll find what, what speaks to me. But but yeah, so I have been drinking scotch for an entire week and just, you know, loving that. I tended to have a few drams, put it away, and I just couldn't. So um, I think that kind of made me seek out something different. And perhaps that's how I also how I why I pulled that Amador off the shelf rather than like one of my usual go tos. So I am still enjoying it and I still highly recommend it. I think it's a really great price point under forty five dollars. Very cool. Yeah, I looked it up on my uh, Benny's app here on my phone and even though the one closest to me does not have it in stock i can kind of see what it's like They're, yeah they sell it for like like 39 bucks yeah see? 40 dollars so yeah, it's not so, too bad yes i think mine was well washington state our tax is outrageous on spirits unbelievably outrageous but um i live right on the border of idaho so we drive over to idaho and there's a liquor store called state line liquors and it's on the state line. And, I mean, you you literally, you buy a couple bottles, you can save 20 bucks. It's insane. So that also drives the price in Washington State, which is interesting because of the high tax rate. Yep. Yeah. So, all right. Hey, you guys. What do you say we talk about Megadeth? Let's get to it. Let's do it. All right. I gotta say, guys, it's funny that we haven't covered Megadeth yet. 
that it took us this long to get to Megadeth. It is weird, yeah. Yeah, you would think that Megadeth would have been one of the more obvious choices for us to start out early mm-hmm. with. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, we, we got to it. Well, we're also going to have to cover Exodus so that we're so that we've, we've got them all. Because we've done Slayer. We've done Or Metallica. maybe we should save that for our last episode. Yeah, but we, <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to give you all the big guns right out of the gate. we got to <laughs> string you along for oh, sure. a year or so. You sure, know. sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So since we're making this a two-part series, which we discussed earlier, and we are battling um, an album tonight, I um, did this timeline up until the album that we chose to be our first album in the battle. And um, I, I feel like, just like with Metallica, the listeners who are, who are fans know so much about this band. So bear with me on this timeline. I kind of made it as easy as I could and distilled it down so that we would have time to discuss the album itself. All right. All right. So let's start um, in April of 1983. Um, that's when Dave Mustaine was expelled from Metallica just prior to the band recording their debut album, Kill 'Em All. That fucking sucks. Ugh. So reportedly, oh, I know, right? He, I mean, get to the album and then get kicked out for fuck's sake. Yep. <laughs> you imagine the royalties on that? Um, so he was kicked out uh, of the band reportedly due to substance abuse and personal conflicts. With James Hetfield and <clears throat> Lars Ulrich. Uh, Dave, up until that time, was Metallica's lead guitarist since 1981 when they formed. And it's said by some sources, and we have never um, kind of, we've, we've never really, I'll just say this. I say some sources say he composed most of the group's early songs. Whether that is true or not, no one will ever know. Um, so we always kind of remain neutral in that position. Yes? Do you agree yeah. with me, guys? I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Yep. In all of our Metallica, when we did Metallica's, for, what did we do, a five-part series, we remain neutral in that. I believe, of course, he had a hand in composing probably much of their early songs because he was their lead guitarist. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, who knows? Anyway. So once he was fired, Dave Mustaine was not happy. And he was, <laughs> this is the beginning, I think, of getting to know Dave as, as the entity that we know him now. He vowed to get revenge by forming a band that was faster and heavier than Metallica. And uh. on his, <laughs> on his bus trip, mind you, back to Los Angeles, from New Jersey, by the way. It's just the icing on they the cake right there. So wait a minute. I just want to give you guys a snippet here. Do you remember how Kurt Hammett was brought in? Do you remember that? Yeah, on a plane. On yeah. a plane. They just flown in. They, yeah. flew him at, they flew him in and said, while you're on that plane flight, which is like, what, six hours, I want we, we need you to learn these songs. Okay, cool. But Dave, get on this fucking Greyhound. <laughs> it's going to take you four days to get back to California. <laughs> think on your sins i just i just remember reading that being like damn i mean couldn't even call his mom and be like i need a plane ticket but anyway it's a good thing he took that bus trip because at one of his stops he found a pamphlet in one of the bus stations 
um, by a California senator, um, and his name was Alan Cranston, that read, quote, The arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid no matter what the peace treaties come to, end quote. That term Megadeth stuck in Dave's head. He was like, that's so cool. So he wrote a song with the spelling slightly changed to M-E-G-A-D-E-T-H, which he says... Save the A. Save the A. (laughs) Good one. Good one, Ed. Um, Which he said represented the annihilation of power. So he gets back to L.A. after his very, very, very long bus ride. Actually, I would love to look up how long that bus ride would have been. Because I, I, I feel like it would have been a week back then, I think. Because it takes... I think it would have been a week. But anyway. He started to search for new bandmates. He was like, fucking hell no. I'm still going to make music. And I've got my vengeful plan. So he got together with um, two of his new neighbors, Dave Ellison and Greg Handovit, who had just moved from Minnesota and played bass and guitar respectively. Mustaine and Ellison formed a tight musical bond right away. But despite Dave's enthusiasm, he had trouble finding other members um, that were quality enough to fill out the lineup. So he and Ellison tried about 15 drummers, Jesus Christ. Um, And they said... All they were looking for was someone who would understand meter changes in music. Oof. <laughs> so they selected, in the end, um, Lee Roush, and they decided Dave would handle the vocals because they couldn't find anyone they liked either um, on vocals. Sounds a lot of divaing already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in 1984, Megadeth, as a band now, recorded a three-song demo tape called Last Rites, and that was released in March of 84. The demo featured early versions of Last Rites, Love to Death, The Skull Beneath the Skin, and Mechanics, all of which would appear on the band's debut album. Finding a second guitarist proved very difficult for this band, so in the meantime, Carrie King of Slayer filled in on rhythm guitar for several shows in the San Francisco area in the spring of 1984. Afterwards, King went back to Slayer and Megadeth uh, replaced Roush with a jazz fusion drummer, Gar Samuelson. Um, Samuelson had previously been in the jazz band The New Yorkers with guitarist Chris Poland. And after seeing Samuelson perform with Megadeth as a trio, Poland went backstage and begged for an impromptu audition as lead guitarist. And he did, in the end, join Megadeth that December. So after considering several labels, <laughs> they had many offers, but Dave wasn't happy, of course. He decided to sign the band to Combat Records. And uh, at the time, it was a New York-based independent label that offered Megadeth the highest budget possible out of all the offers to record and tour. In 85, Combat gave the band $8,000 to record and produce its album. After spending 4000 of the budget on drugs, alcohol, and food, the band fired the original producer and finished the recordings themselves. That's rock and roll, man. That's, that's <laughs> so indeed rock and roll. My question is, did he get back on the bus and go back to New York? Uh, that's a really good question. No, they. I'm pretty sure they, they record in L.A. Um, so, Killing is My Business and Business is Good 
the album, was relatively successful in the underground scene and ended up attracting major label interest at this point. There was a music writer named Joel McIver who said the album was blistering technicality and said this album raised the bar for the whole thrash metal scene with guitarists forced to perform even more accurately and powerfully. Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good features the song Mechanics, a song that Dave wrote during his time with Metallica. Supposedly, Dave told the band after he was fired not to use the music he had written. Metallica recorded a different version of the song, The Four Horsemen, with a slower tempo and a melodic middle section. Aha! Uh-huh. The album was also included a cover of Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walkin' at a faster tempo with altered lyrics... Megadeth's version generated a lot of controversy in the 1990s when its writer, Lee Hazelwood, called Mustaine's changes vile and offensive. So under threat of legal action, the song was removed from all pressings after 1995. That's fucking lame. Shut the fuck up. It's just a cover, dude. Relax. So according to Dave, Megadeth was under pressure to deliver another successful album that he said, end quote, That sophomore offering is the be-all or end-all of any band. You either go to the next level or it's the beginning of the end, end quote. So the songs were developed rather quickly in an old warehouse south of L.A. before recording began. Mustaine composed most of the music with the other members adding arrangement ideas. The album was produced on a $25,000 budget from Combat Records. But the band was dissatisfied with its financial limitations, so they left Combat and signed with Capitol. Capital bought the rights to the album and hired producer Paul Lanny to remix the earlier recordings. And then we have Peace Sells, But Who's Buyin', which was released in 1986. It has much clearer production and a more sophisticated songwriting, as many critics noted. Dave wanted to write socially conscious lyrics, unlike many of the mainstream heavy metal bands at the time, who he said were singing about hedonistic pleasures. The album was noted for its political commentary in the media and really helped Megadeth expand its fan base. The title track was the album's lead single and was accompanied by a music video that received regular airplay on MTV. The band then went on a short tour with Motorhead, and in February of 1987, Megadeth was the opening for Alice Cooper's Constrictor Tour. And the following month began their first headlining world tour in the UK, The 72-week tour was supported by Overkill and Necros and continued throughout the U.S. During the tour, though, Mustaine and Ellison considered firing Samuelson for his drug abuse. According to Dave, Samuelson had become too much to handle when he was drinking. So drummer Chuck Baylor traveled with Megadeth for the rest of the dates of the tour, and they just kind of felt Samuelson was just out, not able to recover. So then Poland and Dave started fighting, and Poland was accused of selling band equipment to buy heroin. That sucks. And as a result, Samuelson and Poland were both asked to leave the band in 1987, with Baylor becoming the band's full-time drummer. So Poland was initially replaced by Jay Reynolds of Malice, but as the band began working on its next album, Reynolds was replaced by his guitar teacher, Jeff Young. And that's where we're going to leave the band for now. Now, think of the irony of that, though, for a second, is that he fired two guys in his own band uh-huh. for substance abuse problems. Mm-hmm. Yep. A mere three and a half years after 
Five well, years for four years, maybe. Yeah. And also only one album away from using half of your recording budget on fucking booze and drugs. Exactly. Yeah. Egg, egg, exactly. Yeah. And you wonder why we don't talk about him in the highest <laughs> regard on this show. That's such a it's such a thread though, strangely. But yes, there's I think that's yeah. that's a big time diva attitude. Yeah. Um so before we get into peace sells, but who's buying, let's take a quick break because I have to pee. And I've got a lot to say about this album, as I assume you guys do as well. So we'll just leave it right here, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. I got a P two. I feel much better. How about you guys? Much better as well. I'm like a new man. Thanks for the break. All right. Let's talk about Pete Sells, but who's buying the album? So, let's just set this up a little bit. The title track, with its politically conscious lyrics, was released as the album's lead single, as we said previously. The album's cover art featuring the band's mascot, Vic Rattlehead, in front of a desolate United Nations headquarters was created by Ed Repka. Peace Sells But Who's Buying is now regarded as a thrash metal classic and as an album that gave prominence to extreme metal. It's been featured in several publications' best album lists. It's been reissued several times over the years. In 2004, it was remixed and remastered by Dave with extensive liner notes detailing the album's background. In 2011, the three different versions were issued as part of the album's 25th anniversary celebration, and all of them, with the exception of the 2004 mixes, featured new remastering. In an interview way back in 1985, Dave revealed that the band had already started writing new material for the second album um, and said that the two songs, Black Friday and Bad Omen, were finished, and he describes them as being a total blur and being much faster than Rattlehead from their debut album. So they had already written these right after their debut album. And then speaking about the lyrical content of Peace Cells, Dave and Ellison said that they wanted to change the public perception of heavy metal by writing songs that contained socially aware lyrics. Dave further noted that the band was not unaware of the political situation at the time, and that some of his political be- beliefs were reflected in the songs. Um... A a professional rock critic, Steve Huey, noted that the album's combination of punkish political awareness with a dark, threatening, typically heavy metal worldview, or how you sum up this this album. So, uh, who wants to start talking about this album and some of the tracks? Well, I gotta tell you, it has been a very long time since I heard this album from front to back and I mean probably over a decade that being said I will say it's impossible to talk about this band without talking about their contemporaries and I would say out of the big four which we've all discussed here I would say that for me Megadeth is number four unfortunately out of the big four Nothing against Dave Mustaine or anything. I think Dave Mustaine is a fantastic guitar player. And in many ways, as big a Metallica fan as I am, 
There are things about Mustaine's style of playing that I prefer over Hammett's. I think that he is has an aggressiveness to him that Hammett just doesn't possess. Um, some of the technical aspects of how he plays, I, I don't think Hammett has those, as good as Hammett is. Uh, that being said, listening to this again, after so much time, you know, I'm very in between on this. I'm very in between on this album. Uh, especially, you know, without jumping ahead to what we'll talk about in part two, but some of their stuff from late 80s, early 90s, when you're talking about mid-80s thrash, when thrash was coming to the forefront, when thrash was at a peak, you're talking about, you're really talking about the big four and four albums. You're talking about Master Puppets, you're talking about Rain and Blood from Slayer, you're talking about uh, Among the Living from Anthrax, and you were talking about this album from Megadeth. And trying to separate this as an entity from everything that was surrounding it is tough because I just don't think it's as good as those other three albums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are highlights. I like the title track. I like Wake Up Dead. I think it's a good opener. But it falls short in all of the other aspects for me as you know, from the other albums that we've talked about from 86, 87 with the other artists that we talked about. Um, Mustaine is a singer. I mean, take it or leave it. You know, it's not his forte. There are some things that he does that I like, but um, like I said, very, very, and maybe I'll have to listen to it a few more times, but very in between on this album listening to it a few times through for this podcast. Yeah. I'm curious I, uh, to hear what you think, Ed. I listened to this album. I, I gave it a fair shake. I listened to it three times through. Um, cause I really wanted to get first, you know, I had my introduction to it and then I really wanted it to kind of, kind of sink in so I could really, really talk about it, um, intelligently. Um, but what's interesting is that this could be, I think almost certainly is the first time um, I've ever listened to an album on this show where I've been a fan of the artist, but yet I did not recognize any of the songs on the album. None of them was like, oh yeah, I've heard, heard that, or I like that. It's almost like... I was listening to every single song for the first time, what? Uh, which was kind of crazy. But um, so I listened through it, like I said, three times. <sighs> None of the songs really grabbed me. There were no memorable hooks, no uh, guitar riffs. You know, yeah, I know Megadeth is capable of simple but kick-ass guitar riffs. I mean, look at Hangar 18. I mean, it's a perfect example of that. Um, but on this album, I couldn't, after listening to it three times within the past 24 hours, I, I can't visualize or in my mind any of the riffs from any of the songs. Um and funny enough, I think my favorite song out of all of them on this album 
is actually, it's not even a metal song, it's a blues song called uh, I Ain't Superstitious. Mm. You know, and I think it's just because that was a little different and kind of mixed it up a little bit, and I thought it was interesting, the most interesting sounding song on the album. Um, Now, the title track, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? I thought the writing on that song was great. I loved listening to the lyrics, but again, musically... Um, it was good, but it didn't really wasn't really super memorable. Um, it didn't really grab me. Um, I mean, overall, if I could give this album a letter grade, I'd give it a, maybe a C plus. Um, so it sounds like I'm Matt and I. You and I are probably fairly close. Now I'm curious if um, you had you had any while you were listening to it, thinking of their contemporaries and what they were putting out at the same time. I mean, were you thinking about Master of Puppets being released in the same year and that album and knowing that album and seeing how this went up against that in the same year? I think, in and a the way... the drastic differences. Yeah, I was thinking about that for the time. Um, maybe not in that spe- those specific terms. But that yeah. was kind of how I was judging it. Because I kind of, I found it hard to just separate myself from those other three albums that were released at the same time. And I'm thinking how amazing those three albums were. And then hearing this, and like you said, nothing really grabbing me and pulling me in where I yeah, could say, oh, that's fucking amazing. That's above right. the bar, you know? And it's hard for me to believe after listening to it and forming the opinion that I did it, that it had so much critical acclaim. So I'm interested to hear what Sailor has to say about this. Yeah, as am I. Mm. As she waits patiently. Okay, so um, there's a few things I'm going to say. Well, I have a question. Uh, Ed, were you ever a Megadeth fan? Yeah, in fact, um, I own but at least one from CD. From when did you start listening to them? For the, did you buy this album in '86 when it came out? No. Or '87, '88, Probably about the the time. Like I said, the very like early '90s. You know, like eight or late '80s, '89, '90s. When I started getting into heavy metal, mm-hmm. about the time I started listening to Metallica, and it's probably all about about that time, that same time. Okay. Um, I disagree with both of you guys in a big, big way. Okay. Um, I don't think that... I think that this is perhaps an... This is an album that doesn't age well in certain ways. I think for me, having... I purchased this album when it came out. And... For me, I still I still love this album. It's still on rotation for me. Um, when I cr- you know I have several metal and metal playlists, thrash playlists, and I and this I always include certain songs off this album and a few other albums. Um, I think to I think it's such a difficult. Um, I think the big four is a difficult argument. First of all, they're not going to be considered one of the big four without really being one of the big four. 
I, I just, especially because he, Dave Mustaine is not well liked. So you, there's some credence in that, you know, and this comes a lot from critics who really know their shit and from fan reaction and sale and album sales. Um, at the time that this album came out, Peace Sells But Who's Buying was a fucking phenomenal record. It was very fast. It was very heavy. Um, it was very well composed. I think Dave Mustaine is an excellent lead guitarist, an excellent composer. Is he a great vocalist? No. Can he get the job done? Sure. Did he do it as well as um, other people, other contemporaries did it when they were forced into being lead vocalists like Hetfield? No. Um, certainly not. However, um, I think to compare this album to Master of Puppets is a little unfair because Dave Mustaine was the foundation of that band. He, I mean, whether we like it or not... Kurt Hammett was flown in to learn songs already written. Fair okay? enough. Nobody yep. argues that fact, right? Not even the band. Um, so I think we, we do have to give due accolade to Mustaine for Metallica's foundation and for that fir- first album. Otherwise, Absolutely. we wouldn't be fair and we w- actually wouldn't be correct. So um, Hammett... Hold made- on. Hold, can, hold on a sure. second. Because I'm not getting something here. How is it not a fair comparison? If Dave had such a big hand in Master of Puppets, then why shouldn't we judge his other material on the same merits? Because it was an already formed band. So there, here you have this formed entity, and we know that uh, Ulrich and Hetfield are great writers. We know mm-hmm. that as as a unit, they were fantastic at composing music together. We know that Lars and James are are great partners in in composing music. Sure, you know without Mustaine, yep. Dave has to go out and find new people. Okay, Hammett got to just step into this well formed entity already, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Master of Puppets, they have f- fucking Cliff Burton. I mean. <laughs> you know, I mean, and and here that up the sleeve. So yeah. So and then Dave has to go find new people that and remember that during this time, if Megadeth is one of the big four, that means remember that thrash is not a thing quite yet. So to get musicians to understand what it is they're playing and writing and what they need to do would be very fucking challenging. Very challenging. I mean, Hammett didn't know what the fuck at first either, but luckily he could follow along with something that was already written, okay? Mm-hmm. Someone that had already played it and composed it, and he could easily slip into that. Um, I think it was much harder for Dave Mustaine to create a band after being in this unit that did well musically, just not personally, <laughs> unfortunately, um, and create a whole a, another band like that. I think that was very, very challenging at the time. Um, for you to say that you didn't hear any cool riffs or hooks or things that stuck in your head, I want to play piece. I want to play the title track for you right now. Okay, peace sells, but who's buying? And you tell me that that doesn't get stuck in your head. Peace sells, but who's buying? Hang on. Sales, 
now end part two to listen to the song, just that song again. I am not alone in feeling that this album is a fantastic record of the time, a fantastic example of thrash in the 1980s, or it wouldn't still be selling as well as it does. It wouldn't have had this giant 25th anniversary celebration and considered one of the formative albums of thrash metal as it is considered. So I have to completely disagree on, on many levels. Um, I think that unfortunately Dave Mustaine's personality gets in the way of his music and that happens with many musicians sometimes. I think the rivalry that he continues to stir up in the media did well to keep him in the forefront of metal discussion. In the same time, it was a double-edged sword. I think it also hurt him and hurt his likability, and that hurts your band's likability and, and your music's likability, unfortunately. Um, I think that Dave Mustaine has done much better um, in a longevity perspective still making music that's true to what they originally made than Metallica has. Absolutely. Damn. Well, agree sure. agree with you a thousand percent Damn on that. Damn yes. sure. He has stuck to what works. He's stuck to the plan. Yep. Fuck yes he has. Yeah. Um I think a lot of Metallica's you know, a lot of Metallica's early uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? Early fame early appreciation is based on Mustaine's back in many ways. And I think it's unfit. I'm not saying that that has to, that has to play into the sounds of his own albums as Megadeth, but I think it's, it's important to continue to note that and to give this guy his due in that respect. So, um, I think, you know, wake up dead, the conjuring, like I said, peace cells, Good Morning Black Friday. I think these are phenomenal songs. And I think they are so indicative of what metalheads wanted to hear in 1986. You know, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. This is what we, this is what I wanted to hear. This album was exactly what I wanted at that time from a band. And when I bought, I remember when I bought the album, I knew I had just found out through reading a metal magazine, it was like Hit Parade or something, Circus, whatever, that, oh, this is the guy that used to play for Metallica. And so I didn't have a lot of backstory on it, a lot of understanding of who he was. I was pretty young in 86. Um, I liked it. I loved it nonetheless. And it's still in my rotation because it is a fantastic 80s thrash metal album. You know what? This is a this is very interesting that this came up when it did because I'm seeing a lot of comparisons between how I'm judging this album and how Matt judged Def, Def Leppard. Leppard. Yeah. You know what? Coming at this with fresh ears... Um, as opposed to being exposed to it back in the day, no, you're you're gives you're being a lot a kinder, completely <laughs> different perspective on the music. Because I'm I'm almost certain, Sailor, if I would have been listening to this album back when it first came out, I 
my opinions would probably skew more towards yours. Uh, absolutely. Than if Matt's you loved right Metallica now. back then, you would have loved this back right. then. And I know there's a lot of people that don't get the similarities, but I'll tell you this. You can Google most music these days and go, you know, say, Peace sells, but who's buying without the lyrics? Peace sells, but who's buying guitar track only? And you can find that on the internet. Mm-hmm. Listen to. Those guitar tracks, isolated, and listen to Metallica. So compare, you know, these freshman and sophomore albums together, and you tell me you don't find a similarity. That is homework for the next episode. <laughs> tell me, I will actually, I will send you the links to the isolated tracks. Tell me that you don't see a similarity in that. Okay. I, I, I will be shocked if you say you don't. I Like I said, I don't think it ages well. I think it's just like, you know, if you if you sit someone down and say, I want you to watch Rosemary's Baby and tell me that you're scared. Uh, uh, some, an 18-year-old, a 6-year-old now is going to be like, what the fuck did I just watch? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Even Poltergeist, they're going to be, they're going to laugh when her head starts spinning. And the green pea suit comes out of her mouth, right? Like you're talking about the, the exorcist, exorcist, right? The exorcist, sorry. Well, both, I'm saying both of them. Both. Didn't I yeah. just say the exorcist as well? I'm he sorry. said poltergeist. Well, yeah. Poltergeist. Oh, poltergeist. And poltergeist. He's like, oh, they're here. Also, poltergeist. Yeah. Like, all, okay, yes, it doesn't matter. Uh, no one of the right now is going to find this, going to find these movies horrifying. <laughs> it matters, of course. <laughs> horrifying or terrifying. My point is that, you know, if you understand, oh, this is what was scary, Back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, you know, you, okay, you'll have a different perspective on it. But if you're asked to just watch it now, you're going to be like, "What? what's this? What the hell is this? Yeah. And I think that's something that you can't always do with music or art or any form of art, really. Architecture. I mean, you're not going to look at a toilet with a pull chain and go, what a bunch of fucking crap is this, you know? That was a worthy invention of the time, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the bar is continually moving. You know, I will, I will. I will agree with you on one thing. You said Sailor, and all the credit in the world to Dave Mustaine for this. When he was booted from Metallica, and like you said, he had to go out and find his own band and start his own thing. Um, but you know, when Metallica is starting to take off into their stratosphere in eighty four, eighty five. This motherfucker's homeless, man. He has no home. That's right. He has no home. A lot of people forget that. This man was homeless. He was Trying homeless. to find his he way. Was, yes. He was struggling. And, homeless and struggling, yes. You know, Metallica said, oh, we'll change a couple parts of these songs and pretend like they're new songs. And that way we don't have to pay this guy for them or, you know, give him credit. And, of course, we know that changed and that later on he was given credit for some of those songs. Probably not all of yeah, them. So he went he through. Yeah. So he went but, through his entire yeah. career with a chip on his shoulder. Sure. And the I douchiness comes from that. Yeah, but I mean, maybe it does. You know, maybe it doesn't. Who maybe knows? he doesn't. He doesn't get the the success he gets without having that chip on his shoulder. A- without abso- that. Well, I think drive. that was probably a driving force for him. Oh, of course, of course. And, and, and to be yeah. fair, you made a comment about him firing two guys from his bands for drinking and drugs. Same thing happened. Metallica did the same thing. They weren't fucking sober Nancys. They were disastrous themselves. They were mm-hmm. fucking doing drugs and drinking and fucking their lives up. Just the same. It just seemed that Dave Mustaine was doing it more. Who knows? I think it was more of a personality thing. I think yeah. if you are not a 
if if you are not a I was just about to say something really inappropriate. If you don't have more of a... <laughs> Since when do we censor ourselves on this show? All right. If you're not a bottom in the relationship, you're not going to make it with Lars and Hetfield. They are clearly the tops. <laughs> they are clearly the dominance. They are the primary relationship. And anyone that joins into that mix is going to be the other woman and the bottom, the submissive. And if you cannot do that, you're not going to make it. Um... I think that the, the as their history has spoken to that. I mean, Kurt Hammett is one of the most quiet, like sweetest guys. Very submissive, it seems. I don't know him personally, but um, you know, isn't a huge person, big personality that needs center of stage. Right. Uh, He's I not think- the kind of guy you would think that would make waves, <laughs> right? Clifford. No, and he doesn't. And I give you a perfect example of. Kirk Hammett not making waves. He loses all of his fucking riffs for their last album. And he says, oh, guys, I lost all my riffs. Um, Can I still be a writing credit on the album? They say, no. After 35 years, we're not going to put your name on the album. Yeah. And he's still with So he's still getting submissive. He's still being the submissive, yes. And I think Cliff Burton was just so – he was such a laid-back guy and didn't give a flying fuck about anything but making good music, you know? And that's why that worked. Um, yeah. Then you bring in a new bass player and you decide to <laughs> erase everything he's done <laughs> from the album. And you want and but but the guy yeah. still stuck around for a while and then you fire sure. him. And so, you know, I mean, their personalities have a lot to do with a lot. But just try to imagine you're Dave Mustaine and here this band is becoming the most famous metal band of all time off of your back. And not only do you not get credit for it, but you're the bad guy. You're the bad press. You know, you're the asshole. Um, that's got to be really difficult. So, you know, personally, I give him a lot of credit, whether it was vengeance or sheer will or passion that made him push forward. But getting back to the album, I think that... Um, I think you a few of things that are important to remember is lyrically they were very different at the time, and that is that is true, and that's why it's yeah. brought up so much. Their content that they were writing about um, was was quite different. If we look back at many of the bands that we have covered just on this podcast, I think you would find it difficult, other than maybe Rage Against the Machine, and I can't think of anybody else off, just off the top of my head who wrote like this at the time. So that was an that's an important part of the popularity of this album and probably to me part of the staying power. Although I don't think it ages well in some ways, their writing certainly does. Okay, so um speaking of albums, what are we going to battle against this one next week? So, we're going to try to keep the peace. Ha ha ha. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't, think, I don't think anyone's buying them. Next week, we are going <laughs> to battle tonight's album against Rust in Peace. Rust in Peace. Sticking with the peace theme. We yeah. are indeed. And All right. next week, I will reveal why we chose Rust in Peace. So, until then... We're going to contemplate, and um, we have a little homework. 
we're going to listen to Peace Sells But Who's Buying the Track again. He has a little homework. He, both of you. No, the, I gave all the credit in the world to his guitar playing and the riffs on the album. All right. Play it back. I gave okay. him all the credit. All I never right. said anything about hooks or riffs or anything like that. Because I okay. think that Dave Mustaine is a fantastic guitar player and a fantastic riff writer. Yeah, I think he is too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. He's got a good, especially now, he's got a really great formula. So, but all right. to be fair, yeah. everything I said was all subjective. I didn't say anything against <laughs> Dave or his playing. Oh, who gives a shit? I think he's probably an <laughs> asshole in real life. Who knows? I mean, he sounds like an asshole. I don't care. I all try right. sometimes to separate the asshole from the music. Sometimes. <laughs> So, dear listeners, if you enjoyed the show and this discussion, please tune in next week, where we will discuss, as Sailor said, rust in peace. But until that time, does anyone want to talk about what they've been listening to or watching lately? Mm-hmm. Anything new <laughs> or notable? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Well, let's have something. <laughs> How about it, Sailor? <laughs> so, I have been listening to Bikini Kill on repeat ah. for quite a while now. Uh, we will be covering Bikini Kill on the next Pretty Good for a Girl show. So, um, have you guys ever listened to Bikini Kill? I have not, actually. Sorry. I listened to a little bit when prepping one of the Pretty Good for a Girl episodes. <laughs> And what did you think? It's not fair. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah. I I should go back and really listen to more. I highly recommend. I highly yeah. recommend you listening to Bikini Kill. They were fucking, they were and are fucking awesome. So I've been listening to them a lot. And um, as for podcasts, for some reason, I've been stuck on the History Chicks again. Um They've just, they cover women in history, notable women in history, and man, they've just been knocking it out of the park. Josephine Baker, um, uh, gosh, so, so, too many, to, too, I can't even, the woman who wrote Anne of Green Gables, like, just fascinating, so I'm super obsessed with that podcast. So shout out to the History Chicks. All right. Anybody else? Matt? Well, I hate to beat the old wrestling drum again as far as podcast goes, but I found a new one and I freaking love it. Uh, it's called it's called Off the Script, uh, and it's uh, hosted by this gentleman. Uh, you can find him on Instagram, JD from NY two hundred six, and it's basically he watches the shows on Monday and Tuesday or pay per views on Sunday, and he will jump right on the mic and record, go live on YouTube right after the show, give his review. And, you know, he's a big, he's a boisterous personality. He's from Brooklyn. So, you know, he gets very emotional. He gets very Brooklyn, it's called. Very Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's highly entertaining. Uh, It's very off the cuff, uh, spontaneous reactions to the things that he just saw right before he jumps on the mic. So I would definitely recommend checking him out. If you are a wrestling fan, he does do video game stuff too. Um, video game reviews, uh, live streams of him playing different games and stuff. So uh, that's JD from NY206 on Instagram and YouTube, and the podcast is called Off the Script. Nice. Check him out. Yes. 
All right, well, I guess uh, I was trying to think of something new, and pretty much everything I've been listening to or watching I've brought up before. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well. we'll save that for another time. All right, Matt, why don't you get us out of here? All right. And to all of our listeners, our fellow metal, rock, and whiskey obsessors, we value your opinions and your feedback. Find us on Instagram at Metal Rock Whiskey. Send us your love, your likes, and please share your thoughts, reviews, questions, suggestions, concerns, and comments about the show. You can also follow us individually on Instagram, yours truly, at the Whiskey Obsessor. That is Whiskey Save the E. Keep voting on this Metal Rock and March Madness bracket, please. Yeah. We have a long way to go. We need a winner. You guys are doing great. Uh, so please keep um, punching in those votes every day in our stories on Instagram. Uh, again, that's at the Whiskey Obsessor. You can find me, Whiskey Save the E, Ed. As they would say on MTV back in the day, rock the vote. Um, <laughs> and they can find me on Instagram at Bourbon Geek. Sailor? You can find me as Sailor Retro all over the place. And since you mentioned it last week, Ed, you can find me now on Xbox Live. Is that what it's called? Xbox Live? (laughs) Yes. As Sailor Retro. Yay! Awesome. (laughs) Well, this was a lot of fun, guys. And I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. But now, my beer glass is empty. And it is time to go. So please be sure to tip your waitress. We are out. Fuck you, Lars. Later, guys. Later, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>